Dolores was a very small, fragile person, but very opinionated, said Kovach. Her belief was that she was an international artist and she wanted to break the rest of the world. After the band's label pleaded with them to not release as a single the, quote, politically urgent song and offered to pay her to work on a different song, O'Riordan ripped up the $1 million check. This is the warrior poet, musings for a thoughtful leader. Episode one, Decision Zombies. The anecdote I shared earlier was from Wikipedia and was about Dolores O'Riordan, lead vocalist for the Cranberries. And the song that Island Records, the Cranberries label, urged O'Riordan and the band to avoid releasing was Zombie, which I just played a second ago for you. It was quote-unquote politically urgent because it was a protest song written about the IRA bombing in Warrington in 1993 where two young boys were killed. O'Riordan, who died about a year and a half before recording this podcast, clearly had no problem being decisive when she ripped up that $1 million check but many of us do with usually much less than $1 million on the line. And even more than our individual difficulties making decisions and keeping to decisions, there are countless issues with organizations making decisions and sticking to them. Taking what once might have been beautiful music and turning it into an annoying emo metalcore cover. This is Bad Wolves. Silence causes silence. Who are we mistaken? But you see, it's not me. It's not my family. In your head, in your head. They you know that guy? That guy who always comes up to you as you're about to ship something? and wants to question everything about it. You've made a video for your website and everybody's been expecting it and it's to educate customers, you're really excited about it and this thing is almost done. And all of a sudden, they want to question every single aspect about it. They want to question the music, they want to question the pace, they want to question the tone, they want to question the script, do they want to question whether your company should be even called that anymore? They want to question what the pricing is. They want to question who should even do the voiceover. They want to question, should we do cartoons or should we do live action? And they have feedback on every little thing from big things to small things. And they've very carefully noted every single time frame in the video where some sort of action is needed or where some sort of problem is spotted. And this person 
is not a decision maker. This person didn't do the video. However, this person was involved in, or at least informed in a racy context, uh, or, or I don't know if people pronounce it rasky, R-A-S-C-I, and we can talk about that maybe later in the episode or in a different episode. I'll link to it in the show notes. But this person was informed, so they were the I in that racy matrix. They were informed of the whole way. They saw the script. They were shared on that. They were in the meeting where you discussed whether you were going to do live action or some sort of animation. They were in the thread in your product planning tool. Let's say it's Asana or Confluence, Jira. They saw the messages back and forth about whether we were going to use an agency or whether we were going to do this in-house. They were in that other meeting where we figured out who was going to do the voiceover. And this thing is ready to go. It's about to go out. We're at the finish line. And all of a sudden, everything is being questioned. They want you to do the voiceover over again. Or, or actually, they want someone else to do it. Yada, yada, yada. This is fatiguing. It is confusing to everybody. It is dispiriting. It makes everyone who worked on it feel like perhaps they wasted their time. More experienced people will likely get pissed off at this person or at least be frustrated with the confusion that this adds. More junior people, the reaction is likely to be one of not knowing who's in charge, not knowing who's making the final call, not knowing what work to change and, and what work not to change and whether to ship it or not. And this is a real example. I've exaggerated some points for effect, but it's a microcosm of a concept that I'm now calling, as of today, the decision zombies. An experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. <laughs> Of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. And it's this tendency to resurrect questions that have already been solved and revisit them again. And hem and haw, hand ring, because they either disagreed with the original decision, and that actually is, I, I actually respect that a lot more. If it's a big decision or it's something where they have a point of view, that I'm not endorsing totally at this stage in the project, especially if there's not serious legal risk or ethical concerns or serious business risk. Not endorsing it, but I can respect it. But what I can't respect, what no one should respect, are those who either A, are very risk averse and afraid to do anything and take a stand, whether it be creative or otherwise, and put something out in the world. There are far too many of these people. It goes back to a line that 
one of the guys in my first SEAL platoon said, and I'll never forget it. I don't know who originally said it. He said, most people are cowards. And I, I can't remember the exact context. I wish I could remember where we were, what the situation was. And yeah, the statement was, most people are cowards. And you can apply this to so many things in life if you just assume most people are cowards. And sometimes that person is you as well. Kind of like Richard Feynman's point on, uh, you know, the, the first rule is don't fool yourself. And the second is you are the easiest person to fool. So most people are cowards. That's A. B, going back to the reasons why this person is hemming and hawing. B is because they value intellectual comprehensiveness, neatness, and coherence over real-world action. And I will confess that I have fallen prey, especially in my early time at Amazon, to some of these faults in this example in terms of being very microscopic about feedback, revisiting things, and valuing some sort of intellectual tidiness over, over action, um, and, and, and adding confusion to the mix in terms of operations. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. In much the same way as that Night of the Living Dead trailer, decisions that are resurrected inevitably take time and resources away from making new decisions. And the more decisions you make faster generally, especially in startups and especially in software, the better off you're going to be in terms of results. So let's call this person the necromancer in this organization, this summoner of decisions long departed and otherwise resting in peace. Oftentimes the necromancer will submit feedback that is so lengthy and so detailed and has so many points that it's impossible to respond in a short period of time. They may have taken half an hour or an hour or more to craft this email or this Slack message. It could take you forever to respond to all this and uh, maybe even more time than it took them to produce it. And so you have to ask yourself at that point, is it worth responding to everything? Is it worth even reading this at all? And the answer may be yes. If this person is in your chain of command, so to speak, if you somehow report up to them at some point in your organizational structure, then you probably need to at least read it. If this person has, at times, really valuable feedback, then even late in the game, it may be frustrating, but you may want to at least read it. But generally, you should 
not try and respond to everything. You should ignore what you can. And you should push back on the whole process part of this, the whole principle of submitting all this feedback late. You should try and clarify in a way that does not emphasize your ego or your place in the mix what the organizational and execution structure is. And so if this person is a side stakeholder or has is a repeat offender in this vein, then you need to talk about how we're executing at speed and decisions have been made and the time for feedback has passed. And thank you for your feedback. It looks really valuable. And I invite you to bring these points up again when we do the next iteration, when we do the next cycle. It does a few things. Many of them are obvious. But take note of the last one, which is feel free to bring these points up again. It's not an invitation, really. You're not, you're not saying, I definitely want to hear these points again. Secondly, the onus is on them. It's their problem. They brought all these things up, especially late, and many of them are minutiae, and they're a side stakeholder. It's their problem to document these things, not yours. And it's their problem to bring the relevant ones up again. And, and you, you could even say, a better way to phrase it would be, I would love for you to bring up the most important points that come up again when we review this again. And so that's saying, I don't want your dump of stuff and I don't want to have to sift through it. Bring up the things that are relevant and important at a time in the future that I, not you, will determine. The onus is on them to bring these things up, but I will determine the point at which we review these things again or anything again. And so that reduces needless work on your part. We all need to take risks and we all need to value action and execution. And sometimes that means being comfortable that decisions may not be perfect, but that unless something is critical, we don't need to constantly revisit decisions that were already made. It's preferable, in my experience, to execute and then iterate. But if you, ne if you take forever to ship something, it slows your iterations down. And so it's better to settle decisions, execute towards a milestone, achieve that milestone, and then go back and improve. Kind of like a cover of a cover can occasionally be an improvement. Yeah, amigo, you heard that right. As one YouTube commenter said on this Jonathan Young cover of the Bad Wolves cover, it's coverception. Slowly, child is slowly, child.
Another way to look at this is if you have a single person who is in charge and owns the product, then they're free to make as many changes as they want until the end. That includes taking feedback from other people and incorporating that. But too often in a project scenario and a company, and, and some of this could be changed by, by companies and organizations, through better leadership and organizational design. Some of it is just the nature of doing business, just doing things in the real world with people where there's no perfect organizational structure for every scenario. And sometimes people are going to have to be in a matrix shared responsibility sort of scenario. And so you have these scenarios where someone could be given full responsibility or ownership over a certain project or task or team or deliverable customer result, business result. And either organizations are failing to give that person that authority or people from the fringes erode that responsibility with feedback that comes in late or is derogatory or dispiriting the team, or is public in nature where it should be perhaps private in nature, where it's couched in very absolutist terms instead of terms that are more friendly in the sense or intellectually humble. So I, 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 now I think people should have more, I think people should have thicker skin where people can express points of view quickly and strongly without needing to necessarily insert all sorts of qualifiers, you know, like I think, I believe, or is it possible that, or perhaps to try and water down their opinion and make it easier to swallow. However, we're all humans. We're all social animals and it, sometimes it's just, it makes sense to make an effort to do that. We all have egos and it makes sense a lot of times to put in the time to add a few words here or there to your email or your comment verbally to make the other person feel like you're a collaborator and you're being helpful and not that you're knocking them down or that they and their work are somehow wrong or at fault. And so doing simple things like adding capitals IMO, in my opinion, to a sentence here or there, or posing things as a question, especially an open-ended question, can be... Can, can mean the difference between you having a huge impact on the result and on the team and or you seeming like someone just throwing bombs from the sidelines. For many of you, that concludes our episode for today. For the rest of you, is everybody else gone? 
I think it's just you and me now. All the posers, wannabes, and dilettantes have left. This is the full benefit part of the program where we'll go through a number of footnotes, explanations, and entertaining orphan facts who don't have a home in the rest of the program. In a basic SEAL instructor's words, we're going to get all the way wet. I knew a guy in the SEAL teams, a brother of mine, who was really into zombies. We went through advanced training together and then deployed twice. He was definitely a man of action, like Dolores O'Riordan. There were no decision zombies in his world. Ironically, the only way to stop a zombie is to incapacitate its brain. He died of brain cancer. I'd encourage those of you who feel for him or feel for any veteran and their families to donate to the Navy SEAL Foundation or any other veteran-focused foundation. Footnote number two. Conspicuously missing from the music elsewhere in this episode is anything by the artist Rob Zombie. He's never really been my type, although his music would have been up the alley of that seal brother I mentioned earlier. Interestingly, before the success of White Zombie, his band, he happened to be a production assistant for the television series Pee-wee's Playhouse, if you believe that. Can you imagine that? Picture him on set at Pee-wee's Playhouse. Uh, that must have been an interesting scene. Music in our program isn't just inserted randomly. It has a purpose. I'm really into music myself uh, and movies and often in my episodes, I'll weave in pop culture to make the topics here, whether they be leadership focused, military focused, philosophical or business, all more accessible to hopefully you and frankly to myself. Personally, I hope you enjoyed that softer acoustic cover I played toward the end of the program by Violet Orlandi. I uh, found her on YouTube and I, I just found that really captivating. I also came across a cover of Cranberry Zombie by a duo called Brooklyn Duo. And uh, I think you can find them with that hashtag and one word Brooklyn Duo. I'll include a link to their rendition, which they did on the day of or the day after it was announced that Dolores O'Riordan had passed. And uh, that's, that's particularly interesting. It's more of a classical take, uh, cello and piano, but uh, I, I thought it was really well done. Luis Fonsi, Despacito, featuring Daddy Yankee. Daddy Yankee being one of the worst artist names in history. 6.4 billion. Mark Ronson, Uptown Funk, official video featuring Bruno Mars, 3.6 billion. Baby Shark, animal songs. Pink Fong songs for children, 3.3 billion. Maroon 5, Sugar, 3 billion. Katy Perry, Roar, 2.9 billion. Just ahead of Taylor Swift with Shake It Off. Adele, Hello, 2.5 billion. 21 Pilots, Stressed Out, Love That Song, 1.8 billion. Ariana Grande, Problem, featuring Iggy Azalea, who happens to be, I think, from 
New Zealand or Australia, uh, Iggy Azalea, which I never would have imagined. Um, I always wonder what it's like to talk to her in person um, if she really talks like that. 1.1 billion, almost 1.2. Lady Gaga, Bad Romance, 1 billion. And then there's Shakira, I Can't Remember to Forget You, featuring Rihanna. I'm surprised that's not over a billion. It's almost a billion. And Cranberry Zombie is right under a billion at I think around 950 million as of this recording. The video is particularly awesome. And uh, there are only about 175 videos on YouTube that have more than a billion views. So that's saying something both about the song the content of the song and the video, you should definitely check it out. It's super interesting, super powerful. And it turns out that the original version of that video was banned by the BBC because of, as alluded to earlier, the controversial political content of the song and potentially some aspects of the video as well where some British soldiers are, are featured um, walking down the streets. Bad Wolves, their video is a, a an overt copy or homage to the Cranberries video. And uh, interestingly, although I badmouthed their cover earlier, I, I, I don't love it. I, I, I far from love it. It, it is interesting that in their defense or their favor, Dolores O'Riordan was actually going to lay down a vocal track on that song for Bad Wolves the day right after she passed away. So at least she must have thought that Bad Wolves was doing something right. So um, for those of you who disagree and, and love emo annoying metalcore, um, maybe, maybe I'm the wrong one and you're right. <laughs> Lastly, I've come through the podcast All Songs Considered by NPR to really appreciate Amanda Palmer. I find her really powerful, really creative, really interesting, both to the brother I mentioned earlier and to Dolores, I can find no more fitting way than to play this and say, rest in peace. The Warrior Poet is a property of Rainiac Productions. The helicopter fills you heard come courtesy of Mike Koenig. Thanks, Mike. Few things are as comforting as a powerful rotor chop. Warrior Poet is produced by Laddie, with special contributions by Spoonman and me, Shree. <laughs>